Everybody can kind of settle down a little bit. A couple of announcements. The uh, date has been set for the uh, Camp Arete garage sale, and that occurs on May 1st to 2nd. What they do the, with the, the funds that they raise for that is to pay for the transportation to take uh, a lot of these kids from Houston up to Colorado. So that's going to be May 1st to 2nd. So start, you know, do your spring cleaning. Start thinking about what you may want to uh, uh, donate for the uh, uh, garage sale and let Jeff Phipps know. Jeff is not here tonight. He was with uh, us today all day at a Lagos training camp. So between us, we have one brain cell that barely barely functional. Art's laughing over here. We have two celebrities with us tonight that I, I want to introduce to you. Art Booz is down here in the front. And if you are using Logos Bible software where you have access to all the notes, uh, all the transcripts within Logos that from all the classes that I've taught over the last 15 or 16 years, Art's the one who put all of that together. And so he is. Uh, he helps Morris Proctor in, in that training. So he's here. And then um, Pastor... Reverend John Hintz of Tucson Bible Church is here. Most Reverend, Reverend, yeah. And uh, he came in to spend the week uh, tormenting me and going to uh, uh, the Logos training. And and, uh, John and I go back to where I was nine years old and he was about 30 at the time. No, he was he was about seventeen. So I was I was actually in a Monday night Bible class that he taught for high school kids, and your sister was in that too, back back a few decades ago. So we uh, we had a good time. Anyway, so they're here, and we have spent all day from this morning until five o'clock learning how to use a computer program. And if you've ever been in any kind of training seminars like that, you know exactly how. Uh, how focused we are at this time and how well rested our brains are. So, Anyhow, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, that will prepare us for studying the word this evening. Scripture says that if we sin, we lose that fellowship with God, that walk by the Spirit, abiding in Christ. And the only way to recover that so we can go forward in the Christian life is to confess or admit, acknowledge our sins to Him. We're instantly forgiven of those sins, And in God's grace, he cleanses us from all sin. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful we can be here tonight. It's due to your grace that we have all the many blessings that we have And, Father, we just uh, pray that as we continue and finalize our study tonight, 
that we've been studying for the last uh, nine or ten months on dispensations and your plan of the ages, that you'll just help us to to think, be able to concentrate tonight as we wrap this up with a with a lesson that really is designed to help us to think a little critically about our understanding of dispensations in light of uh, current trends and developments. Father, we pray that we might be uh, able to think precisely about your word, that, that in so many ways the truth of your word is under assault today, and the only uh, real protection we have is, is God the Holy Spirit helps us to understand your word, but we have to know your word for God the Holy Spirit to have something uh, to work with so that we can have something to understand. And, Father, we just pray that you would help us to focus this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight's going to be a little different because this is more of a focus on understanding a theological development that occurred about um, maybe 30 years ago, 25 to 30 years ago, in dispensationalism called progressive dispensationalism. And so the focus on this is really to kind of wrap up the study that we've done for the last 10 months. For uh, some of you, this is something you're a little bit aware of. Some of you may have never heard the term progressive dispensationalism. And this is going to uh, perhaps put uh, call for you to go into the deep end tonight instead of the shallow end of the pool because this gets a little a little more technical in terms of a theological study. But for those of you, and that's most of you, who have gone through this series with me during the last 10 months, this is basically the notes of what I teach every other year when I go over to uh, Kiev and teach the students at the Word of God Bible Institute. It can easily be converted into a, a seminary class on dispensations. And we'll be using this some with uh, students who want to get credit in a course on dispensationalism at, uh, at, at Chafer Seminary. And so as part of that, it, we should definitely include a little bit on this development that came really out of Dallas Seminary and was developed by Dallas Seminary, uh, sadly, by Dallas Seminary graduates uh, back in the 1980s. Progressive dispensationalism is the name. I'll go into why it's called that. Uh, in just a minute, but it was a development that grew out of a uh, dispensational study group. These are small, different groups. You have Old Testament theology study groups and New Testament theology study groups, textual criticism study groups, all kinds of breakout sessions and study groups that they have at the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the largest professional association of evangelical theologians in the country. If you are teaching in academics, if you're in Bible college, Bible institute, seminary, uh, any, any of those, then you're pretty much required to be a member. The only thing you have to agree on is the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And so there are a lot of people from uh, full-bore Arminians to uh, ultra-Calvinists, ultra five-point Calvinists, uh, and everything in between dispensationalists, covenant theologians, Lutherans, everything but but Roman Catholics, although I say that with an asterisk because about three or four years ago, the president of the Evangelical Theological Society went back to the Roman Catholic Church in the middle of his term as the president of the Evangelical Theological uh, Society, which was quite a scandal, and he was forced to resign. So we live in a very 
strange world today. Anyway, in 1986, this dispensational study group, which had been meeting and discussing issues related to dispensationalism for several years, uh, met in at Atlanta, Georgia that year. And this was at approximately the same time that I had moved back to Dallas to work on my, on my doctorate in theological studies. And they really came out with this new system, which was designed to find some sort of middle ground between dispensational theology on the one hand and covenant theology on the other hand. And it's, in my opinion, it wasn't very successful at, at all. And in the opinion of many uh, covenant theologians, it wasn't very successful, except they looked at, at these, these guys who were dispensationalists who were teaching this new system, and they said they just haven't, they're not willing to admit that, that they're no longer dispensationalists. I mean, there were numerous uh, theologians who, who said that. The uh, three men who were most, most responsible for this were Craig Blazing, who now teaches, I think, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I had him in a uh, doctoral seminar on uh, dispensationalism. Daryl Bach, who's a local Houston boy who uh, is a Jewish background believer, went to Kincaid and went to Dallas Seminary out at Spring Branch Community Church. And he was about two or three years ahead of me at Dallas. And then someone from an older generation, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Sosi from Talbot Seminary, were the three main architects of this new the- new theology. Gary Brashears, who taught up at Western Conservative Baptist uh, the- Seminary at that that time, wrote about this ETS meeting that, quote, it seems that both moderate dispensationalists and moderate covenant theologians are moving toward each other in rapprochement. In other words, they're trying to find a compromise. And my, one of my criticisms of this movement is it was a desire to find a middle ground between two theological systems. It wasn't motivated by a desire to, to understand the text more fully and more completely and base their theology on, on a text. They, and, and, and in my opinion, they end up having to twist their hermeneutics and their, their system of interpretation in order to uh, fit a system that is really neither fish nor fowl. It's, it's neither one. So it was that desire to find a middle ground that was their chief motivation and not to find an exegetically correct and biblically correct uh, the, theological system. Ryrie, in his book on dispensationalism, has a chapter on, on progressive dispensationalism, and he says that the term was, according to that, was that it became official an official title for their system in 1991. Now, that may be when he nails it in some publication, uh, but when I was a, in a doctoral program in 1987, we were calling it progressive dispensationalism at that time, but maybe they hadn't settled on a on a term. Uh, uh, Bob Leitner, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary for many years, said that there have been other titles like reconstructed dispensationalism, modified dispensationalism, new dispensationalism, neo-dispensationalism, revised dispensationalism, kingdom dispensationalism, and even changed uh, dispensationalism. Now, the idea of progressive, just this, we'll get into this a little bit more, but just so you understand this at the beginning, this term progressive emphasizes their idea that the Old Testament covenants, these would be 
uh, the unconditional covenants that we've talked about, the Abrahamic covenant, and what were the three elements of the Abrahamic covenant? Land, seed, and blessing. The land promise is developed in what covenant? Land covenant, real estate covenant, older theologians call it the Palestinian covenant. The seed promise was developed in what covenant? The Davidic covenant. And then the blessing uh, covenant was developed in what? The new covenant. The blessing aspect was developed in the new covenant. So in their view, all of those covenants were uh, inaugurated. That's their key. That's a key term to kind of listen to. If you hear some pastor say that he believes that the new covenant or the new covenant was inaugurated uh, at the cross or inaugurated at Pentecost, right away you can pigeonhole him that that he is not a traditional dispensationalist. So their view was that these were inaugurated either at the cross or at Pentecost, and in some sense they're fulfilled today. And, but not completely. And so during this age, we're progressively moving toward a complete fulfillment which comes in the future. And they apply this development to the Abrahamic covenant and primarily to the uh, blessing or the, and the new covenant and the seed or the Davidic covenant. But they fail to address how in any sense this applies to the new covenant. See, if it's going to apply to the land covenant, I mean, if it's going to apply to the uh, uh, Davidic covenant and to the new covenant, then it would also have to apply to the land covenant. But that would mean that the land was, that, that Israel already had the land and would be progressively coming into it. And that just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit history at all. So that's the idea. And they use this terminology of inaugurated eschatology. That's another one of those uh, $2 words that theologians throw around. That is the idea that we're somehow already living in the early stage. The church age under this system becomes almost a, a, a front door or an entry hall to the kingdom. So in some sense, the new covenant has already been inaugurated. The kingdom has already been inaugurated, and it's progressively coming in. So it minimizes the significance of the church age. It minimizes the significance of the church and makes the church and the church age sort of a prelude uh, to the uh, millennial, millennial kingdom. Now, as they analyze the history of dispensationalism in their attempts to justify their shifts, they talked about the fact that there were basically three stages in the development of dispensational thinking. And this takes us back to a little bit of an understanding of the history of dispensationalism because their argument was that just as some of the uh, later dispensational theologians like Walvoord and Ryrie and Dwight Pentecost changed or modified what Darby had taught and what the early dispensationalists taught in the 19th century, that that, that was just the same thing that they were doing. But when you understand what they're doing, uh, what happened with, with, with the uh, sort of the second generation or second era of dispensationalists uh, after Chafer is that they were tightening the screws and, and tightening the bolts and they were straightening a few things out, sort of like a, 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 you, you get a house and it needs a new paint job, the furniture needs to be recovered, needs new carpet, the, maybe, maybe you need to take out the old cabinets and put in some new cabinets, but it's still the same house. But they were basically going next door 
and taking some of the old furniture out and putting it into a new house next door. They were really changing things. And so they, they talk about the stages in the development of uh, dispensationalism. So this chart gives you a timeline where we start in, in 1830 on the timeline, and it was roughly around 1836-37 that John Nelson Darby first articulates the doctrine of the rapture. And John Nelson Darby was an Irish Irishman, a theologian, that had been ordained as an Anglican, left the Anglican church and sort of went through a time because of an injury that he was forced to get out of the ministry and just recover. And during that time, he read his Bible a lot. And as a result of that time of Bible reading, he he came up with a... uh, uh, a revision of his understanding of Scripture. He left the Anglican Church, became part of a movement that had already started. He wasn't a founder of the Plymouth Brethren movement, but he came, became part of it. And, uh, and, and he articulated, was the first to really systematize and articulate dispensationalism. So we have John Nelson Darby, whose dates are 1800 to 1882. And from the 1850s on, he made a number of trips to the United States where he spoke in conferences and churches all over the United States and had a tremendous impact, uh, especially within Presbyterian circles. And a lot of people don't realize that the roots, part, a lot of the roots of dispensational theology come out of Calvinism. And a lot of it came out uh, because a lot of, um, of Reformed theologians and Presbyterians, uh, Anglicans in England, Presbyterians in the United States, were shifting to premillennialism. And so in the context of some of the Bible conference movements in the late 19th century, they were shifting towards uh, towards dispensationalism. Remember, uh, C.I. Schofield was ordained as a uh, congregationalist. He had uh, pastored a church. It was a congregational church in Dallas, which is now called Schofield Memorial Church. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer was ordained as a Southern Presbyterian. And he had also been ordained, I believe, as a, as a congregationalist. And uh, so they came out of that, that kind of a background. So you have Darby, you have C.I. Schofield, uh, whose dates are 1843 to 1921, and it's during the night between 1913 and 1917 that he publishes uh, what many have believed is the foundational work for dispensationalists, which was the uh, Schofield Study Bible. And I know many of you still have copies of the Schofield Reference Bible on your on your bookshelves. And then he, one of his most noted uh, protégés was Lewisbury Chafer, whose dates were 1851 to 19. Uh, I think I, I've got that wrong. Um, he didn't live over 100 years. Uh, much, I think it was about 1861, uh, 1861 to 1952. And then John Walbert, uh, Chafer founded Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Walbert was his. Uh, successor as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. So you have this era of, that they called classic dispensationalism from Darby uh, through Lewis Berry Chafer. And then what they developed called essentialist or normative dispensationalism, which covered the period from roughly 1950 up to the present. And the basic architects, they would say, of normative or essentialist dispensationalism would be Alva J. McLean, who you probably aren't familiar with. He was at Grace Theological Seminary. John Walbert, Dwight Pentecost, who just went to be with the Lord this last year, and Charles Ryrie, who is still alive. He's 89 years old and was at the pre-trip conference 
uh, I think for the banquet this this last this last year. So they're they're still alive. And they call it essentialist because Ryrie in his book Dispensationalism Today that came out in the sixties and was revised later to be called Dispensationalism said that there are three essentials. Remember this? Three essentials for dispensational theology. And what are they? Number one, literal interpretation of Scripture. Number two, distinction between Israel and the church. And number three is that God's overriding purpose, uh, the overriding purpose for history is the glory of God. In contrast to covenant theology, which uses allegorical or spiritual interpretation, at, especially when it comes to th- prophecy, they do not hold, covenant theology does not hold to a distinction between Israel and the church. They see Israel as the church in the Old Testament and church today is the new Israel. And we are the true Israel of God. So they don't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And the ultimate purpose, God's ultimate purpose in history is not doxological. It's not his glory. It is redemptive. Now think about that. What's the problem with that? Do angels get redeemed? No. Angels are left out of that whole scenario, which is one reason that you have had very little, if anything, written about the angelic conflict or angelology coming out of the Reformed camp because it's not central to their understanding of the overall framework framework of scripture and then in the mid 18 i mean mid 1980s you have the development of uh, progressive dispensationalism now in classic dispensationalism uh, there was a, a, a in, in the early years with darby there were some real differences I, I just finished doing some study on darby darby did not think that the first dispensation began until um uh, Noah, that all everything before Noah was not a dispensation. Not only that, this will surprise you, he didn't think the church age was a dispensation. But a lot of Darby's views were not consistent with his basic definition of what a dispensation was. So he had basic terminology and ideas down, but but they really did need to be refined and things needed to be become consistent. So you have that development that occurs in the uh, basically most of the 1900s and its expansion, which was enormous. And one of the uh, impacts of dispensationalism in the 19th century was missions and missionaries, especially missions to Jews, which was a huge byproduct of the impact of dispensationalism because in dispensationalism, with their understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church, they understood the the future role that God had for Israel and that they would be restored to their land and that they would then, uh, the kingdom would come in the millennium. So dispensationalists are necessarily all premillennial, although there are not, although all premillennialists are not necessarily dispensationalists. So in this slide, I just went over what we talked about a minute ago, Ryrie's Essentials. Uh, literal grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, the distinction between Israel and the church, and the unifying principle of histories of the glory of God. One of the questions I have for Ryrie is he doesn't list them in this order. Ryrie puts the distinction between Israel and the church first. I've always reversed one and two because I think our understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church comes out of a literal hermeneutic. That needs to be number one. And what we'll see tonight, 
uh, in this, basically just a flyover on progressive dispensationalism, is that the real issue here is on hermeneutics, how you interpret, how you interpret the scripture. So, I just look at some of the characteristics of, of progressive dispensationalism. Uh, first of all, it teaches that Christ is already reigning in heaven on the throne of David, thus merging the church with a present phase of the already inaugurated Davidic covenant and kingdom. So they, they change the terminology. This is a big issue in their, their, their uh, interpretation is on the basis of Old Testament passages, it was clear that the Messiah would, rule, would reign on David's throne in Jerusalem over Israel. And so they add to those prophecies something new that wasn't there in the Old Testament. When you press them for where that is, you ask Daryl Bach a question, well, what's your exegetical support? And, and, and he'll cite Acts 2 and, and Paul's, I mean, uh, Peter's uh, citation of Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and you praise him. So, well, where is that? He'll say, well, it's implied there. That's, he's in print saying that. It's implied there. Uh, second thing, the characteristic of progressive dispensationalism is it's based on a, what they call a complementary hermeneutic. Now, what is our hermeneutic? This is your final exam. Literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. They change that definition. And it's no longer literal, grammatical, historical. It's literal, grammatical, historical, literary, theological. See, they add two categories. Literary, you have to interpret on the basis of genre or the kind of of, of category of scripture and on the basis of theology. But see, hermeneutics leads to theology. Your theology doesn't develop your hermeneutics. And then third, they see the overall purpose of of God in history's Christological and that holistic redemption is the focus and goal of history. And that also has some serious problems because of the way they're, they're playing with the term Christological. It's Christological because they want to put Christ on David's throne now. That's what the distinction is. So they play something of a, of a word game. So... Uh, these three elements, though, are in direct contrast to what Ryrie said. Remember, Ryrie says it's a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, and they say, no, it's a complementary hermeneutic. Uh, Walbert says the emphasis on the distinction between Israel and the church, and they say that, no, uh, this, this kind of gets blurred because Jesus is now reigning on David's throne in heaven, and then... Uh, as Ryrie pointed out, the purpose is glor- the glory of God, and they would say, no, the purpose is Christological. There, uh, just a couple of comments from covenant theologians. Uh, Willem Van Gemmeren, who's a covenant theologian, said that Bach agrees with covenant theology that the eschatological kingdom was inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus. This is what covenant theologians are saying. Uh, they understand that. And uh, Bruce Waltke who was a professor, head of the Old Testament department at Dallas Seminary. Uh, he had a very, uh, 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 he had a brilliant uh, 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 teaching assistant back in the late 60s by the name of Charlie Clough. And uh, Waltke was absolutely brilliant. I've seen Waltke stand up in front of class, somebody ask him a question, and he'll kind of stare off into space, and he'll say, well, according to 
Uh, footnote 22 on page 37 in chapter 4, and then he'll, a two-paragraph footnote, he'll just recall it from memory. Absolutely brilliant. He was offered a full professorship at Harvard when he got his Ph.D. from Harvard in Semitic languages. But like a lot of people like that, they can't think theologically. They're what I call grammatical technicians. They're excellent in the language, but they're not theologians. And after Walkie left Dallas, he, he went off. Uh, first he was Plymouth Brethren, then he went to Westminster and became Covenant and Amil, and he's just been all over the place. But he said that the position of, uh, of progressives is closer to covenant theology than to dispensationalism. And then this last quote I have here is from Vern Poitras, who also taught at Westminster, I believe, and wrote a book that was a, a critique, nasty critique, and, and filled with ad hominem arguments and straw men arguments and misrepresentations of, of, of dispensationalism. But he said regarding progressive dispensationalism that it is inherently unstable. I do not think that they will find it possible in the long run to create a safe haven theologically between classic dispensationalism and covenantal premillennialism. The forces that their own observations have set in motion will most likely lead to covenantal premillennialism after the pattern of George Eldon Ladd. Ladd taught at Fuller. Ladd's a big figure in the study of, of, um, of, uh, of eschatology because he came up with this idea of the, what I referred to earlier, inaugurated eschatology, otherwise known as the already-not-yet view uh, of the kingdom, that it's already established, but it's not yet fully here. So we're already in the kingdom, but not yet fully here. And and see, part of the signs of the kingdom is what? Joel 2, your young men will see dreams and your your old men will see visions and, and, and you know, the whole idea of, of direct revelation again. And, and this was a foundation for the vineyard, the whole development of the vineyard, vineyard movement and the third wave that, that because we've got this inaugurated eschatology today, we're already in the kingdom. We can expect these manifestations of the spirit today, speaking in tongues and seeing dreams and visions and God speaking to us today. And so according to, uh, uh, their, their, the view of progressive dispensationalism, they were buying into, um, they completely bought into this already not yet view of the kingdom. And I remember running into Daryl in the stacks of the library at, at Dallas Seminary, and I'm not sure, but I think Tommy Ice was with me, and I was doing doctoral research on the vineyard movement. I said, Daryl, can you give me one exegetical or theological reason why you should, why the vineyard movement is wrong, is wrong on their use of already not yet and why you shouldn't approve of them because of your view of the already not yet view of the kingdom. And he couldn't give me one. He just said, because it isn't. He said, that's not a very good answer. So this is what happens. Now, as I said earlier, the real foundation here and the real battle as we see in our culture today is over hermeneutics. We see this most clearly at the Supreme Court level is how do you interpret the Constitution? Is it a living document that has takes on new meaning with each generation or is the meaning inherent in the, in the will and the intent of the authors and does it have objective, solid meaning that doesn't change with the, with the generations? 
And so this, this becomes the issue. When you get into an era of subjectivity in a culture, then the battle is no longer on objective truth because you've rejected that. The culture, our culture has completely rejected objective truth and objective meaning. It doesn't exist. And so uh, that's where the battle is, is how do you know anything? How do you know what something means? Is it inherent in what you read? Is it in the will of the author or the one who produced the work? Or is it in the mind of the one who is perceiving it? And ever since Immanuel Kant uh, came along, we've seen this huge shift to where it's in the mind of the person who's perceiving it. He assigns meaning to whatever it is he's reading or listening to or looking at uh, in, the case, uh, in the case of art. So complementary hermeneutics, progressive dispensationalism replaces the literal historical single meaning of the text hermeneutic. That's what we believe with the literal, gr- historical, grammatical, literary, theological method. They add two things. How do you con- understand what a text means? Well, you have to understand, this really comes into play in prophecy, you have to understand that there's a genre called apocalyptic. But apocalyptic was non-biblical. Apocalyptic was, hap- was what happened in the Apocrypha and in the Pseudepigrapha. Apocalyptic had to do with Jewish mysticism in the intertestamental period. It doesn't have to do with prophecy. Just because there are symbols doesn't mean it's apocalyptic. So they confuse all this. This is a huge battle that goes on at the seminary level. And I remember um, uh, Andy Woods, who's pastor of Sugarland Bible Church, had a doctoral course uh, at Dallas just on this, and he was the only guy in the class who understood it. And there were just battles, arguments, royal over, over these issues. That prophecy is prophecy. That is a biblical category. Apocalyptic literature is a non-biblical category. You can't read that back into the Bible because the Bible, you know, it's the old question of what comes first, the chicken or the egg? God created the chicken first. God, create, God created first the truth of God's word precedes all other systems and all other religions. They're simply a pale, distorted consequence of man's rejection of, of, of truth. And so you can't come along and look at apocalyptic literature and say that's what influenced the Bible. No, apocalyptic literature is a perversion of the prophetic literature that's in Scripture, but apocalyptic is another big word that you hear inaugurated, you're already not yet, you hear uh, apocalyptic literature just right away, you know this isn't anybody we want to listen to. Regarding their interpretation, um, Daryl Bach said, the New Testament does introduce change and advance. It does not merely repeat Old Testament revelation. In making complementary additions, however, it does not jettison old promises. What he's basically saying is that there are new things that are added, but these new things that are added do change the meaning of what was there in the Old Testament. It doesn't just enhance it. So you go back to uh, Old Testament prophecies, you would never get out of those Old Testament prophecies what they say is being uh, read into this. So uh, this is really important to under uh, understand this. Um, have another statement here from from the progressives. They say that progressive dispensationalists are not rejecting literal interpretation completely. They're rejecting consistent traditional historical grammatical interpretation. I believe this is from Robert, so, uh, Robert uh, Thomas. 
Traditional dispensations have always employed a consistent and literal interpretation of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Today, a new compromised hermeneutic of the former is being employed by progressive dispensationalists called a complementary hermeneutic. So this is the view that that, um, that Daryl Bach is, is, is promoting. So what he means by this is that the New Testament adds new and different meaning to Old Testament passages that were not part of the meaning of the Old Testament passage. This is what Robert Thomas says. You remember Robert Thomas, a little curmudgeon, was here about six or seven years ago, taught on hermeneutics. He's got a whole chapter in his book on evangelical hermeneutics on, um, on progressive dispensationalism. And he says that it, that is progressive dispensationalism, has replaced grammatical historical interpretation with a system of hermeneutics called historical grammatical literary theological. Several comparisons that illustrate the differences between the two hermeneutical systems relate to the function of the interpreter, the historical dimension, the single meaning principle. See, the function of the interpreter, what it means is that meaning is now assigned by the interpreter. They, another phrase that they use is that, that you have a pre-understanding when you come to the text, and that pre-understanding shapes your understanding of the text. This is a very postmodern idea. We all have preconceptions when we come to the text of the Bible, but we let the Bible change our preconceptions. How do you think so many people who weren't dispensationalists became dispensationalists? Not because they had already been taught dispensationalists or came to it with that pre-understanding, but because the Word of God changed their, their views. And it works in the other direction as well. But for them, it's that pre-understanding. The reason you're a dispensationalist, Robbie, is because you have that pre-understanding. If you just open your mind, you could see covenant theology there. So single meaning principle is is a classic historical principle of hermeneutics that a text means only one thing. It may have several applications, but it has only one meaning. The author intended to communicate, the author, human and divine, only intended to communicate one thing. And then the issue of census plenure, that's a whole other issue. I'm not going to get into that in a survey like this. And the importance of thoroughness. The bottom line, he says, is that a choice between dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism amounts to a choice of which system of hermeneutics an interpreter chooses to follow. See, that's the issue. It's how are you going to understand what the text, what the text says. So, and then my good friend Tommy I says, the complementary approach put forth by Blazing and Bach is claimed to be a synthesis combining the answer of older dispensationalism which demonstrates a greater sensitivity to quote the historical interpretation of the Old Testament while adopting covenant theology's view that includes the adding of new revelation. Bach has suggested in the process of interpreting Peter's use of Joel in Acts 2 that the eschaton has begun. That's a fancy way of saying uh, the end times has already begun. The millennial kingdom has already begun. The eschaton has begun. The movement toward the culmination of the eschaton has started, as have the benefits associated with the coming of the day of the Lord. See, we're, we're like on, already in the entryway of the millennial kingdom. You just didn't know that. That's, that's so amillennial, or even postmillennial. We're on the entry, the doorstep of the millennial kingdom. You didn't know that. Like Tommy always says, if this is in any way the millennial kingdom, I must be living in a millennial ghetto. So they, and they admit that they shifted away because the old system, literary, grammatical, historical, just wasn't good enough. Craig Blazing wrote, 
Hermeneutics has become much more complex today than when Charles Rye reaffirmed literal interpretation. Almost sounds like you're reading a Democrat talk about the, the Constitution, doesn't it? You know, interpreting the Constitution just so much more. The world is so much more complex today. But truth is truth, and absolutes are absolutes. But anyway, he says that uh, it's a lot more complex today than when Charles Rye reaffirmed literal interpretation is a clear, plain, normal method of interpretation. Literary interpretation is developed so that some things which earlier interpreters thought they clearly saw in Scripture are not clearly seen today at all. For them, it's just ambiguous. Usually, I think when people think the Bible is ambiguous is because they don't like what it says. Okay, moving on. And then Blazing and Bach wrote, uh, I'm not going to read that whole quote. Basically, they're saying that in the, in the 50s and 60s, evangelicals were shying away from typology, but unfortunately, uh, they, as they were developing more biblical uh, ideas, uh, it showed the, 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 the lack of capabilities in uh, their limited literal historical grammatical interpretation. And then one other quote, just to, because this is important. McQuilkin and Mullen wrote a great critique of evangelical hermeneutics and how subjective it's become in postmodern. See, the world is constantly getting into the church, and people are thinking subjectively. Postmodernism basically means that, that anything can mean what you want it to mean. You look at something, you read it, and you can read whatever you want to in it, and you can assign the meaning to it yourself because what they intended is irrelevant and probably unknowable. So they, uh, they wrote in a book on hermeneutics, it, it, that is postmodern thinking, is said by some to be the logical development of modernism toward ever greater relativ- relativity, not only in the perception of truth, but also of reality itself. On this view, postmodernism would be the logical outcome of enlightenment thinking. Once you, enlightenment thinking cut the anchor to authority i.e. God. And so once you slip your anchor, you can just drift and drift and drift, and we've driven, drifted so far away that now nobody knows anything, no matter how educated they are. He says, he goes on, they go on to say, on this view, postmodernism would be the logical outcome of enlightenment thinking, the final step of recognizing that meaning is created in part at least by my personal perceptions. The role of the interpreter, the knowing subject, is being redefined not merely for how meaning is to be understood and communicated, but actually for how the interpreter participates in the creation of meaning and even for some the creation of whatever reality that is. So where this applies to, to progressive dispensationalism is their idea that, that, that you, the pre-understanding of the interpreter shapes his interpretation of Scripture. In other words, there's an, there's an inherent rejection of the, of the idea that the interpreter can have any level of objectivity. So the reason you're a dispensationalist is because that's what you were taught. But that ends up in a fallacious circular argument. So as a result of this hermeneutic, Jesus is currently reigning from David's throne in heaven, which adds a totally new dimension to the Old Testament predictions. The Old Testament predictions, David's throne's on the earth. Now we got this whole new thing that is added to uh, the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets. So, again, it's just changing, uh, significantly changing what dispensationalists 
had taught today. So the whole idea of complementary hermeneutics is such that if it was applied unilaterally to all of Scripture, the original recipients of the revelation could not know definitely and precisely what the text meant. That's amillennial. You can't really know what God promised Abraham in terms of the land until you get into the New Testament. Because then, according to their view, when you get into the New Testament, you discover the land isn't a piece of real estate between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. It's heaven. Right? I know some of you are great Stonewall Jackson fans. What happened when Stonewall Jackson died? Wanted to be crossed over the river. What river was that? The Jordan. That's what he's thinking because that's how Presbyterians thought. When you died, you crossed the Jordan. The Jordan wasn't a literal river. It's going from this life to heaven. And when you crossed into the promised land, it wasn't a physical land. It was heaven. They're not literal. So that's, that's what happens is that you can't really... Abraham couldn't understand God's promise because he thought he was talking about physical real estate. But you get in the New Testament, and all of a sudden you find out it was heaven that God was promising Abraham. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> That's right. You know, how, how could he walk the breadth of the land? So um, moving on. How did dis- progressive dispensationalists view dispensationalism? Well, they see it as they have four dispensations, the patriarchal dispensation, which goes from creation to Sinai, the Mosaic Dispensation, which goes from Sinai to Christ's ascension, and uh, an Ecclesial Dispensation, which goes from the ascension to the second coming. Now, the problem with this, and then the Zionic Dispensation, which has two parts, the Millennial Kingdom and then on into eternity. So the progressive dispensationalists Understand dispensations not as different administrative arrangements between God and the human race, but as successive arrangements in progressive revelation. It removes objectivity from it. It's not God changing the way he administers human history from one period to the next. It is just a shift in progressive revelation. Without getting, I mean, this is what's happening in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 isn't talking about six literal days. Those literal days are just literary structures. That's basically what they're saying is this is, this is just how the literature is organized. It's not really about a change in administration. So that's, that's one problem. Another problem is that in doing this, they, they are emphasizing what all these administrations have in common, which is what theologians call continuity, and they're ignoring what the difference is. But it's the differences that are significant. Just ask Maurice Chevalier in Gigi, Viva la Difference. It's not what men and women have in common. It's the difference that's so important. That's the issue in dispensationalism. It's the difference between these eras that's important. It's not what they have in common. Nobody's arguing about uh, things that they have in common. So at, at best, this leads to a dilution of the uniqueness of the church age, and at worst, it leads to a complete destruction and obliteration of the, of the church age. It, it becomes sort of a second or third class uh, dispensation. 
going along with that, they deny that the present church age was a mystery in the Old Testament. We say the word mystery means something that has not been revealed. But in progressive dispensation, they just say the church age wasn't realized. What what does that mean? That that it, it it's just and that the um, the church age is just a progressive stage in the revelation of the kingdom. It really minimizes its its significance. So when we look at their dispensational chart, it's difficult to understand why progressives begin with the patriarchal dispensation. Uh, they they don't talk about what goes on before the fall, and when they lump everything together in one dispensation, it ignores the major events such as the fall and the flood and the new revel- major revelations given by God in Genesis three and in Genesis nine. Ryrie says about this, to lump pre-fall conditions, post-fall conditions, and the Abrahamic covenant under common stewardship, arrangement, or dispensation is artificial to say the least. He's such a gentleman. Second thing is that there's, <clears throat> there's not a problem beginning the Mosaic dispensation at Sinai, but there's no biblical reason to end at the Christ's ascension. Christ's death on the cross was the end of the law, not the day of Pentecost. So that just doesn't make sense at all. Uh, the Bible clearly makes the dividing point the death of Christ in passages like Romans 3.20, Galatians 3.18-25, and Colossians 2.14. The only reason to end it at Christ's ascension is because of their already not yet presupposition. See, their pre-understanding is shaping their interpretation of Scripture. So this just shows how their theology is shaping their hermeneutic. They're consistent with their, with their view. So for them, the new covenant was inaugurated at the cross, whereas traditional dispensationalists would say it was ratified at the cross. But it doesn't go into effect until Jesus returns because the new covenant is between the house of Israel and the house of house of Judah. So another thing is that calling the church age the ecclesial dispensation is very confusing because it doesn't show a distinction of what happens at the rapture when the church leaves at the beginning of the trip. But in the early days, at least, the pre-trib rapture was not an important issue for progressive dispensationalists. However, a couple of years ago, a book came out, one of these books they have for, uh, for people to understand different positions called Four Views on the Rapture. And Craig Blazing wrote the chapter on the pre-trib rapture, which was really good. He did a great job defending the pre-trib rapture, which really was, su- was surprising uh, considering his positions in, as a progressive dispensationalist. So, also, so this basically breaks things down in terms of the distinctions of the church today and, the, and this impacts their views on, uh, uh, on the distinction with church and Israel. So anyway, that I'm just going to stop there. That gives you an idea of progressive dispensationalism and why it's a problem. It comes down to, first of all, their hermeneutic, and it's not a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic, and how that impacts their understanding of the church, their under, it, it impacts their understanding of, of, uh, of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit because they'll say there was some kind of uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. 
Craig, I remember Craig Blazing trying to floating trial balloons in that that uh, study group I was in, trying to say that there wasn't a, that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament, and regeneration didn't begin until the Church Age. They just have some odd odd ideas. Romans six is talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit as that which is is essentially the identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. How can you have that in the Old Testament? And it frees us from the sin nature. So, but but this gets this is appealing to an eclectic mindset that dominates our culture today. We don't want to make distinctions. We want to just have a big tent and have everybody come together and just wrap your arms around each other, and we're all just going to be happy in Jesus forever. And let's not think too deeply or too precisely. But, you know, I, I don't mean to ridicule these men. I, they're brilliant. Most of these men have two or three PhDs. It is their system, though, that is not considered because it's shaped by their presupposition, which is we need to find a theological uh, synthesis between covenant theology and dispensationalism, which is, in my opinion, is is, is self-defeating. As we're wrapping this up, anybody have any questions? What? One, one came in? Anybody know what it was? You got it, Bryce? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tony and Carney. Uh, it seems to me there's a lot of subtlety in the uh, the uh, pre, uh, this system. Progressive dispensationalism. Yeah. Yes, there is a lot of subtlety. That's why it's that's why people get sucked into things that are deceptive. Is because the serpent was the most subtle creature in the garden. They go on to say, uh, Greg Blazing gave a lecture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary last uh, semester as part of a conference on eschatology. Having listened to Blazing's lecture on 1 Thessalonians 4 and the rapture, uh, had I not known his position in uh, progressive dispensationalism, I would not have guessed it. How does the rapture fit into the progressive dispensationalist scheme if it really is more akin to covenant pre-mill theology. Well, the, you know, to this date, which is... Why are you answering? Okay, I'm answering the question that he... Thank you for... Let me repeat the question. He, he, this is from somebody who heard Craig Blazing talk on First Thessalonians 4 at Southwestern Baptist Seminary uh, last semester. And, you know, he's orthodox. He's very solid on the pre-trib rapture. And the question was, how does a pre-trib rapture fit within progressive dispensationalism? And in the early years, I would say from the mid-80s up until 2000, it was not something that they really addressed. So, so the thinking that, that we had at that time was that uh, progressive dispensationalists were eventually just going to dump the rapture. But like I said when I was talking is that Craig did a fabulous job defending the pre-trib rapture. It's just that within their system, it's not something that they're making that, that most uh, progressive dispensationalists make a, a a big deal about it. It's not something that they think is critical, and that flows out of their their minimiza- minimalization of the significance of the church age. But but uh, to date, most progressive dispensationalists, with problem, there may be some exceptions because I don't go out and read all this stuff like I used to. Uh, I get tired of reading junk. Thank you. That's a technical. That's a technical theological word. It's in the Greek. 
So, uh, but but I think a lot of the the, the, the founders, Daryl Bach, Craig Blazing, Bob Sosey, many of the others that were foundational architects of this did not dump the pre-trib rapture. So it just wasn't as significant for them. So, okay. Well, that wraps up this series on dispensationalism. And next Tuesday night, we're going to start a whole new series on 1 Samuel. And we're going to go through actually all of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So we will start drilling down on Samuel. Samuel is just a fabulous book. It's Actually, this is the first time I've ever as a pastor gone back and retaught a book I've taught before. I taught First and Second Samuel in the late 80s, and it was tremendous. And since then, I've learned one or two things. So <laughs> you never know what we're going to discover this time, but it's just fabulous. And one of, the, one of the fabulous aspects of it, and we'll spend some time, we're going to have to go back and do some, some flyover work on judges because to understand, the, to understand Samuel, you have to understand the period of the judges because it begins in the period of the judges, which is a period of pure relativism. Everyone, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And no statement could be more true of our culture today. So there's going to be some great uh, way, great things that we can do to analyze our current mess and what we have to do as believers because I don't think it's going to change. And I think there's going to be a lot of connection between Samuel and Peter because First Peter is talking about how to... Uh, focus and have hope and optimism and confidence today in light of our future destiny in spite of the suffering and adversity that we're going to go through. And I think, you know, and I, I'm by nature, I am, I am not a pessimist. John, John and I were talking about this today. I am not a pessimist. But when we live in a world where the trajectory is, is negative, then aside from a massive interference by God, in terms of a, a, a major revival, which I don't anticipate, uh, things are not going to get any better, and they're going to get worse. And even if it doesn't get as bad as I might imply at times, personally it can get just as bad because we all face tremendous negative things that happen in our own lives. And so the only way to face these things is to have the Word of God in our soul and practice using them. Because when the time comes for us to face adversity, whether it's overt persecution or just the hostility of living in the devil's world, the principles for handling it are all the same. And we just need to learn those and to become experts in how to use those 10 problem-solving devices. And especially, because this is what Peter's all about, that personal sense of our eternal destiny. And then when you go to Samuel and you see the people there living in this horrid culture, and this, this, this moral relativism, and the only thing that saves them is what? The Messiah. It's the gospel according to Samuel. It is the Messiah. The, the, it's David who is the type of the Messiah who brings deliverance. But if it's not for the Messiah, there is no, there is no deliverance and no escape. So we'll start with 1 Samuel next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your plan for the ages to go through this uh, series of, of important studies to come to understand uh, the structure that you've given history, the structure that we see in the scripture, and how this points us ultimately towards the uh, fulfillment of all of your Old Testament prophecies and promises 
and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth that we will very much have a part of as we rule and reign with him as priests and kings in that time and that we're in training right now. You are preparing us today for eternity and we so much need to learn to live today in light of eternity. And we pray that you would give us that that, that focus, especially as we go through our study in, in Peter and also an understanding of of the times today as we study in in 1st and 2nd Samuel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.